0: This is Space Time, Series 26, Episode 96, for broadcast on the 11th of August, 2023. Coming up on Space Time, a new tool in the hunt for dangerous, earth-threatening asteroids has its first success. Why, some asteroids are able to generate magnetic fields. And that mysterious piece of space junk that washed up on a Western Australian beach, well, turns out it was Indian. All that and more coming up on Space Time.
1: Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary.
0: A new asteroid discovery algorithm has identified its first potentially hazardous asteroid that is a space rock orbiting close enough to the Earth to be a concern. The 200-metre-wide asteroid, designated 2022 SF-289, was discovered during a test drive of the algorithm, which is designed to uncover near-Earth asteroids for the Vera C. Rubin Observatory's upcoming 10-year survey of the night sky. Vera C. Rubin will be looking for thousands of as-yet-unknown near-Earth asteroids. Finding 2022 SF-289 confirms that the next-generation algorithm, known as Heliolink 3D, can identify near-Earth asteroids with fewer more dispersed observations than required by today's methods. Rubin's scientist, Ari Hines from the University of Washington, who developed the algorithm, and in future may well have wound up saving the Earth, says that by demonstrating the real-world effectiveness of this software, Vera C. Rubin will make us all safer. The solar system is home to tens of millions of rocky bodies. They range in size from small meteoroids the size of pebbles or even grains of sand up to dwarf planets the size of our moon. Most of these bodies are distant and pose no threat. But there are a number which orbit close enough to Earth to be a worry and these are known as NEOs or near-Earth objects. The closest of these are those whose trajectory takes them close enough to Earth's orbit to warrant special attention. Scientists search for potentially hazardous asteroids using very specialised telescope systems, like the Atlas survey run by the team at the University of Hawaii. They do so by taking images of different parts of the sky at least four times every night. A discovery is made when they notice a point of light moving unambiguously in a straight line over the series of images. So far, astronomers have discovered some 2,350 potentially hazardous asteroids using this method, but they estimate there will be at least as many more waiting to be discovered. And from its peak in the Chilean Andes, the Vera C. Rubin Observatory is set to join the hunt for these objects in early 2025. Rubin's observations will dramatically increase the discovery rate of potentially hazardous asteroids by scanning the skies unprecedentedly quickly with its 8.4-metre mirror and massive 3,200-megapixel camera, visiting spots in the sky twice every night rather than the four times needed by present telescopes. But with this novel observing cadence, researchers need a new type of discovery algorithms to reliably spot space rocks. So Rubin's solar system software team at the University of Washington have been working to develop the codes. Working with Smithsonian senior astrophysicist and Harvard University lecturer Matthew Holman, who in 2018 pioneered a new class of heliocentric asteroid search algorithms, Heinz, together with Siegfried Egel from the University of Illinois, developed Heliolink 3D, a code that could find asteroids in Rubin's dataset. With Rubin still under construction, Heinz and Eggel wanted to test the Heliolink 3D to see if it could discover a new asteroid in existing data, one with too few observations to be discovered by today's conventional algorithms. The Atlas astronomers then offered their data set to test, and the Rubin team let loose Helio 3D, quickly spotting their first potential hazardous asteroid, 2022 SF-289, which was initially imaged by Atlas at a distance of 21 million kilometres from Earth. in retrospect, Atlas had observed 2022 SF-289 three times on four separate nights. But never the requisite four times on a single night needed to be identified as a new Neo. Other surveys had also missed 22 SF-289 because it was passing in front of the rich starfields of the Milky Way. Now, by knowing where to look, additional observations could be made using the Pan-STARRS and Catalina Sky Surveys, which quickly confirmed the discovery. So what do we really know about this dangerous space rock? Well, 22SF289 is classified as an Apollo-type NEO, or near-Earth object. That's one whose orbit does cross that of the Earth. Its 200-metre diameter is large enough to be classified as potentially hazardous. Its closest approach brings it to within 226,000 kilometres of Earth's orbit. That's closer than the Moon. But despite its proximity, projections indicate it poses no real danger of hitting the Earth, at least not in the foreseeable future. This report from the National Science Foundation.
2: Earth, birthplace of every human who's ever lived. All our heroes, all our villains, all our homes, dwarfed by the space through which it flies, vulnerable and precious. Our neighbours Mars and Venus remain tens of millions of miles away, even at closest approach. But the trajectory that of an asteroid called 2022 SF-289 comes much closer. This isn't an impact. It misses Earth's orbit by 140,000 miles, over half the distance to the moon. That's a good thing. At roughly 600 feet in diameter, 2022 SF-289 could cause an explosion big enough to destroy several cities if it struck a populated region. It won't impact Earth in the foreseeable future. It's just one of hundreds of potentially hazardous asteroids whose orbits are carefully calculated as part of NASA's effort to defend the Earth. The remarkable story here is how this asteroid was discovered. Amid the beautiful desolation of the Chilean Andes, the Vera Rubin Observatory is being built to perform humanity's most ambitious survey yet of the night sky. Starting in 2025, Rubin will precisely measure billions of stars and galaxies, and protect our planet by discovering thousands of near Earth asteroids smaller telescopes can't detect. To scan the widest possible areas of sky, Rubin Asteroid Discovery relies on a new algorithm called Heliolink 3D, which can combine data from multiple nights and find new asteroids with just two images per night, where current surveys need four. Hoping to confirm this plan works in real life, ran the new software on weeks of data from NASA's Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System, ATLAS. It took a long time. Existing software is very efficient and doesn't miss much. But the discovery of 2022 SF-289, the very first NEO ever discovered using Heliolink 3D, is the proof that new software can help the ongoing surveys discover even more. Additional analysis identified further initially unrecognized detections of 2022 SF-289 from other surveys. Heliolink 3D will enable Rubin to fulfill its promise of discovering and tracking thousands of new potentially hazardous asteroids. By validating the ongoing global effort to defend our planetary home, the discovery of 2022 SF-289 should make us all feel safer.
0: This is space time. Still to come... Why some asteroids are able to generate magnetic fields. And scientists identify a mystery piece of space junk that washed up on a Western Australian beach. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A new study suggests that heat generated by collisions between accreting asteroid fragments could be enough to produce magnetic field traces in some metallic asteroids. The findings, reported in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS, may have solved a long-standing puzzle and even shed light on the formation of magnetic geodynamos in the cores of planets planetary magnetism is key to understanding both the internal structure and evolution of many celestial bodies. The cores of the Earth, Mercury and two of Jupiter's moons, Ganymede and Aya, for example, all generate detectable magnetic fields. And there are also traces of ancient magnetism found on Mars and the Earth's moon as well. But there are also meteorites, small space rocks that have fallen to Earth that also contain hints of magnetism. And that's always been a bit of a mystery. So to say there are some iron meteorites which bear the remnants of an internally generated magnetic field, and that shouldn't be possible. Although iron meteorites are thought to represent the metallic cores of asteroids, these cores are not expected to have the highly specific internal characteristics necessary to simultaneously generate and record magnetism. But a new study suggests that under the right conditions, collisions between asteroids can lead to the formation of metallic asteroids that can generate a magnetic field and record that magnetism by their own materials. Yale University scientists Zhang Chan and David Bercovici claim that small fragments of these asteroids, with traces of magnetism in them, could fall to Earth as meteorites the authors were conducting research on what are known as rubble pile asteroids, which are created when gravitational forces cause the fragments from an asteroid collision to reform into new combinations. That work inspired Zhang and Bercovici to consider the question of whether the rubble pile phenomenon might be relevant to the generation of a magnetic field. The author's modelling suggests that after an asteroid collision, it is possible for a new iron-heavy asteroid to form with a cold rubble pile in a core surrounded by a warmer liquid outer layer. When the colder core begins to draw heat from the outer layer and lighter elements such as sulphur are released which initiates convection, this in turn could create a magnetic field. Now, according to their model, this sort of dynamo could generate a magnetic field for several million years, which would be long enough for its presence to be embedded in iron meteorites, which could then be detected by scientists when they fall to Earth billions of years later. Bercovici admits the idea of a rubble-piled core is a bit like dropping ice cubes into molten metal. They can't be too big or too small, but there is this ideal size that is just small enough to cool in space, but also sink fast enough into the melted metal and pile up in the centre to make an inner core like the Earth, at least for a little while. This is space-time. Still to come, scientists have finally solved the mystery of a piece of space junk that washed up on a Western Australian beach, and later in the science report archaeologists discover the remnants of what could be the world's earliest curry. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A mysterious object that washed up on a Western Australian beach last month is finally being confirmed as a piece of space junk from a spent Indian rocket. The barnacle encrusted pressure tank washed up on a beach near Durian Bay, a remote coastal ridge in two hours north of Perth. Now, the legacy media quickly speculated that this must be part of Malaysian airlines flight mh370 that's the plane that disappeared back on March the eighth 2014 while on a flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. But astronomers and space scientists quickly identified the three-metre-tall, two-and-a-half-metre-wide tank as rocket debris, either a liquid oxygen or propellant fuel tank. Now ASA, the Australian Space Agency, has confirmed this debris was part of the expended third stage of an Indian Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, a PSLV. And the local town council for the Shire of Kuro say they'd like to keep the debris as a tourist attraction. They'd set it up in a park somewhere. Of course, this isn't the first time Australia's found itself a landing ground for space junk. Almost exactly a year ago, a shape farmer in New South Wales found the charred remains of parts of a Falcon 9 rocket in one of his paddocks. And of course, Western Australia itself is no stranger to space junk, with the remains of NASA's Skylab space station crashing back to Earth in WA, 480 kilometres east of Perth, back in 1979. This space-time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study claims that back-to-back La Nina events are likely to become more frequent under future greenhouse gas emission scenarios. The findings reported in the journal Nature suggest a 33% increase in back-to-back La Nina events predicted under a high greenhouse gas emission scenario. The findings reported in the journal Nature suggest a 33% increase in back-to-back La Nina events can be predicted under a high greenhouse gas emissions forecast. The study found that under the high emissions scenario, the frequency of multi-year La Niñas increased from one event every 12.1 years, which we saw on average between 1900 and 1999, to one event every 9.1 years, which is likely to be the regime from the year 2000 through to 2099. that means more rains for eastern Australia. The authors say their findings of a probable future increase in multi-year Nino frequency strengthens calls for an urgent need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in order to alleviate the adverse impacts. A new study has confirmed that switching to a vegetarian or vegan diet could help people at high risk of cardiovascular disease to lower their cholesterol levels, their blood sugar levels and maybe even drop a few kilos. The research reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association pulled together 20 previous clinical trials, finding benefits from switching to a vegan or vegetarian diet for six months. The authors say more high-quality trials will further help clarify the effects of healthy plant-based diets in people with cardiovascular disease. The remnants of what's believed to have been Southeast Asia's earliest curry, dating back around 2,000 years, has been found at an archaeological dig site in Vietnam. The discovery, reported in the journal Science Advances, shines new light on the trade network of the time, as well as the role of spices in the daily lives of the ancient people of the day. The archaeologists found traces of spices on the grinding slab and other stone tools buried two metres below the surface, which was dug up in 2018 at the site of an ancient Funan Kingdom trading hub. The analysis revealed several culinary spices that originated in different places around the world, including turmeric, ginger, finger root, sand ginger, galangal, clove, nutmeg and cinnamon. Well, it's Fashion Week, and if you're not sure what to wear for your big night out ghost hunting, we have the solution. Well-known fashionist Tim Minham from Australian Skeptics has some important advice about what clothes are to die for if you want to be in the spirit of things beyond the grave. <laughs> You're laughing. This is serious stuffy. We often talk about ghost hunters and the equipment they need to carry in order to do their jobs and the important tasks that they need to undertake. Things that go beep and things that go boing. And, of course, they also have to dress in a certain way. So let's tackle this from the top. Uh, ghost <laughs> hun- I'm sorry have to wear special black or cam gear because, well, let's face it, they don't want to be seen. Um, that, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, always, let's, uh, let's go through it, yeah. From okay, the... it's always confusing me why they have to
1: wear black or camouflage outfits because I don't think the ghosts are going to care. But apparently they do. Apparently ghosts get uh, worried. If you're wearing sort of loud gear or shiny gear or reflective gear, the ghosts, believe it or not, get spooked.
0: Something very funny about the idea of a ghost getting spooked.
1: And uh, they might not come out. So they're saying... There's one suggestion of, of this uh, website, which is normally has a pretty good tongue in cheek approach to a lot of this stuff. It says if you must wear reflective clothing, cover it up with a dark cardigan or blazer. So, you, what's the purpose of the reflective so
0: clothing?
1: No day gear. No day gear. No tradey outfits that you just come off the building site with. The same goes for jewellery and accessories. You don't want to have you know, dangly earrings, jingle jangle bracelets, or noisy necklaces, etc. All these things are going to scare a ghost. So, apparently, the ghosts are scared of everything else. So, why do they come out? Yeah, some of very practical. Because often, yeah, you you got ghost hunting at night. Again, I don't know why. If you're going into a dark house, it can go in there at daylight, and there should be a ghost as well. I don't know why a ghost only comes out at night. The if the daylight, the you'd see what it was. When you'd come out and you'd see what it was, if it was in daylight. And um, if you see at night time, everything's so vague anyway and dark, that's when you start to believe in ghosts. That's when your evidence is sort of uh, a bit shonkier. But anyway, in the night time, it gets cold, especially if you're out in a cemetery or something like that, you're probably going to get pretty cold. So they're suggesting, one, you've got to wear layers of clothing. That's very nice of them. That's a good idea. You should Use the right footwear. Yeah, sensible shoes, etc. You know, walking shoes, hiking shoes, that sort of thing, because you might trip over a tombstone or something like that. And you're going to wear uh, protective gear. They recommend gloves, etc. And masks, because yeah, you're going to an old house and it's full of dust and all sorts of fungi and all sorts of awful things that you might actually get sick from being in there. So, you know, gloves and masks and uh, probably wear, as they say, appropriate attire, meaning non-reflective and that sort of stuff. Don't wear white gloves. One thing they say, avoid wearing any red items, but I'm not quite sure why. They say, don't wear red items when ghost hunting in an old graveyard. I don't, I don't know if that's a religious thing or what, but that's a strange bit of advice. And they say, bring a change of clothes because you might get spooked. <laughs> no, they actually say because you might get wet. And, you know, I think they I mean falling over in mud. Oh, or whatever. right. I was going to say,
0: where did yes. the moisture come from? From, but we
1: not I don't think they I mean soiling yourself, right? But, I mean, maybe they do. I mean,
0: maybe ghosts but, yeah. are just really fashion conscious.
1: Same for accessories, yeah. You wear something that's going to be warm, etc., but don't get carried away. So there are some dress restrictions that you should obey when going ghost hunting. There's no mention of camouflage gear in this thing, so I, I'm not quite sure if they're in or an
0: out. But basically you want to wear matching like, clothes with a ghost, don't you? But, well,
1: the interesting thing is that all these paranormal teams all wear the same clothes, you see. They've got this uniform, and they often have a little logo on their shirt, etc which is, you know, very impressive. Town and town paranormal hunters, they all wear the same stuff, and whether it's a black outfit or whether it's a camouflage gear. It's a semi-sort of paramilitary approach in some of these cases. But most of this advice, what to wear when ghost hunting, is just the same as stuff you'd say, what to wear when going out on a cold night. So they are, these ghost hunters are very practical.
0: That's Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics.